Following the good news that the Paratriathlon World Championships will be able to be staged after all this year with the confirmation that November's WTCS Abu Dhabi will incorporate the racing on the first weekend of November, we hear from one of the USA's success stories at the Tokyo 2020 Paralympic Games. Today on the World Triathlon Podcast, we welcome the newly crowned men's PTVI Paralympic champion, Brad Snyder. Brad lost his eyesight in 2011 while serving in Afghanistan and 12 months later was winning the first of his now six Paralympic golds to date at London 2012. After Rio 2016 came the switch to triathlon, hitting his first series start line in 2018. While the pandemic ensured that his build up to Tokyo was far from ideal, the result was as good as it gets. So Brad, welcome to the podcast. How are you and where are you? Uh, I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Super excited to be chat chatting with you today. I'm calling into you from Princeton, New Jersey on the East Coast of the US, uh, where I'm uh, I, shortly after getting back from the Tokyo Games, I started uh, my second year as a PhD student here at Princeton University. Right. Wow. So not a huge amount of time to soak it all in. Um, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe it's like having like late birthday presents, it kind of it delays the thing. And in a couple of months time, when you do get some time off, everything will kind of wash back over you again, maybe. I think so. Yes, yeah, the gift that keeps on giving, I think, in that way. <laughs> um, so Saturday, the 28th of August, your alarm's gone off. It's the morning of your Paralympic paratriathlon, at least debut. Do you remember the first thoughts that went through your head that morning? Yeah, I think when uh, Greg and I, uh, Greg, my, Greg Billington, my guide, and I were going, going to bed that night. We were kind of talking about how it felt sort of like Christmas morning. Like you mentioned in the introduction that the uh, pandemic made the preparation less than ideal. And, and boy, is that like a statement we could unpack for quite some time. But after everything, after all of the drama and the preparation and the camps and all the other races, everything built up to that moment. And, uh, you know, you, I think there on one side, you might think like you'd wake up and be super nervous, but boy, we couldn't, we couldn't wait. Mm. I, I feel like we, we had done all the preparation that we wanted to do. We, you, you know, the world triathlon circuit as well as I do, like, you don't know, you don't ever get like a full week of preparation on one course. And, and not only that, but we had a whole pre-camp another week and a half, uh, about, you know, six months worth of, well, actually five years of thinking about the Tokyo course, six months of knowing exactly turn for turn what that course is going to look like. Never had we been able to be that prepared for one race. Mm -hmm. So by the time that race morning comes, you just can't wait for the gun to go off and get going. And that's what made the program was a little frustrating for us. Anyway, we had to show up over at the venue at, uh, well, we had to be to the buses by four 30 to get to the venue by, you know, five to not race till eight 30. So sitting in the athletes lounge for three hours was mm. in some form a torture, but um, we were really excited about when we'd get our chance to go. Yeah. So that three hours, it was just building and building and building inside you as well then. Yeah. And just, just itching to get out there and do what you've been preparing for. Yeah, the challenge I think was to kind of keep your energy low, keep your energy low, do the warming up that you need to do, but keep your energy low. Don't don't burn any matches you don't need to and warm up. And and also with the heat, you know, it was already hot when we got there at uh, five or so in the morning. And we know by 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 8:30, it's going to be about 15 degrees warmer mm. uh, Fahrenheit anyway. So you know, trying to trying to keep cool, try to keep that internal temp as low as possible, do your typical warm up, but also kind of keep your mental, you know, your mental energy sort of 
as low as possible. That was kind of the challenge that morning. Hmm. Yeah. So what, you know, and almost your preparation has obviously been very meticulous. So you got to kind of trust in that and presumably not start, you know, you don't want to just start kind of chatting through the race again in that situation. Do you, are you trying to talk about anything, but, and then kind of get started again once you get to that start line or. Yeah, pretty much anything, but um, it was kind of nice that there was another race going on. So you can kind of let your mental gaze drift over to our teammates, Alyssa, Haley, Melissa, um, uh, the, the gents, Jamie and Eric, kind of what, what's their race look like? Uh, we could, we know it was kind of neat getting a race preview. So for example, uh, we could hear, there was a peculiarity where the, the race buzzer was kind of like a double buzzer, which coming from the swim background, that's actually the sound of a false start. So it was nice kind of having Andy Potts in the athlete lounge saying, Hey, did you guys hear that? Like double buzz kind of thing. So it was, you know, it was a, you know, we were able to kind of think about the race in a maybe tangential way um, that was supportive to what we were trying to do, but not necessarily like, like you said, rehashing our race plan that we had been over a thousand times. That said, um, one of the other challenges in that kind of that lead up is, you know, I think what triathlon is really interesting where you have this dichotomy of you have the opportunity, especially on a course like Tokyo to really pre-plan everything. You can pre-plan what the, you know, getting off on the swim, you can count your strokes to the first buoy, you know exactly where all the turns are, you can game all of the turns on the, on the bike course, you can know where you're going to hit your nutrition, you, can, you know where all the water zones are, um, but inevitably every triathlete knows that something's going to come undone, something's going to go wrong, something's not going to be the way that you had planned it, so trying to, you know, have all that pre-plan advantage like the rigidity of a really nice organized plan but the flexibility to know that something's going to come undone and, and to not let that derail you and for example when uh when uh, our names were announced greg and i are walking down to the swimming platform we had to walk through transition greg looks over and realized that one of the rubber bands to his shoes broke um before we even before we did anything and there wasn't enough time to go over there and fix it so he was basically just whispering to me on the way down to the swimming platform like hey when we're going to go for the mount line you know, you're going to have to give me an extra second to flip my shoes so that we can get going. And it's a good thing he noticed it because that would have been something that would have, you know, in the moment when you're running out to the mountain line, that would have been, you know, not catastrophic, but something really unnerving of the fact that his shoe was upside down. But it ended up being a, a non-factor uh, because we were able to sort of have that, you know, flexibility in mind on the lead up to the start of the race. Mm. And so you would, you would have a, uh, in mind the stroke number to the first boy within a certain amount would you i mean even that i guess you know something as simple as losing count could be the thing that derailed you right or, or was that for sure highly unlikely to happen yeah for sure and so i do a lot of stroke counting uh, you know that's one of the ways that i uh, got better at pool swimming blind was really knowing my stroke count at all times mm -hmm. not only from a uh uh, kind of a, a sense of where I am in the lane, but also from a pacing perspective, it's been really helpful to take into the open water, especially when you have long legs that are, you know, 300 meters, 400 meters long. Sometimes it's really tempting, even in a short race, like 750 meters, you can kind of get lost in your own pace and sort of, you know, your body's inertia is to slow down, but counting strokes really helps me uh, stay on top of what my pacing and where I want to be. But you're right, like, especially when your adrenaline's high, it's really easy to lose that count. Um, and then you have no idea where you are. And then like, you know, that starts to make you think, well, where am I? And where's the buoy? Is the buoy coming up so soon? You don't want to have those thoughts. You kind of want to just let, you know, execute the race plan. Um, and 
I, I've had races where that comes undone. And then I've had races where it, it goes really smoothly. And I'm really glad Tokyo was one of those races that just all of those details came to fruition really nicely. I, I almost knew exactly where the buoy was going to be before we hit it. I was expecting the tap from Greg. Uh, we, we got through those turns really well. And I, I think, again, that was sort of a testament to the, the, the level and the amount of preparation we had done specifically for that course really came to fruition on race day. Hmm. And how, how different did it feel in that immediate buildup then to, to London and to Rio when it was, you know, you were doing the, the swimming side of things. Um, did it kind of feel a bit like going back to that first Paralympics experience and feeling a bit green about everything or? Mm. Oh, that's a good question. I, I think that um, in some ways it felt like being right back in the village again. I think village life, uh, be, being in a room with all the gents and going to the cafeteria and kind of going on the buses to and from the race venue, all of those sort of day-to-day -day logistics all felt like old hat. I, mm. uh, I, I know how to kind of get into an environment like that and kind of create my own space and stick to my own habits and build a framework where I can succeed, you know, getting to bed on time and all that stuff. Um, but to your point, the triathlon racing is just so fundamentally different. Um, and, you know, the swimming program is, it's prelims finals over a stretch of nine days. So it's uh, completely different. Like you're kind of on and off for a long period of time, whereas triathlon is building up to this very climactic one hour long race. And so the energy expenditure is different. The preparation's different. Um, the timing was very different. What I found is like being a triathlete in the village is kind of a nice life hack because we're doing things at times that no one else is doing things. We were up a lot earlier, I felt like. So the cafeteria was empty when we're going to get breakfast. And then because we were up earlier, we were back earlier than everybody else. So the cafeteria was once again empty when we were going to have dinner at 4 35 o'clock. Everybody else was much later. So it was kind of nice having that routine. Um, and then I, I do think I liked you have to be a lot more patient because in swimming kind of like day two or three, you get one of your shots. You get to get, you know, get into the finals pool and have one of your races under your belt, kind of build that confidence. Um, you don't get that in triathlon. It's basically like, however you feel on race day, that's how it's going to be. And you only get the one, you know, the one shot at it. But I, I do find that I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the buildup. I really enjoyed as much as it was frustrating in the moment to sit there for three hours in the athletes lounge waiting for our turn you know, it made for a really cool experience, just waiting for the gun to go off. And once the gun go off, goes off, man, like we smiled in the water, like we're finally going and this is great. Um, and to be able to kind of tackle a mental challenge like triathlon where it's so chaotic, so many, like you said, the, the technology, the, you know, bringing the bike to the game, bringing the, the, the nutrition into the game, bringing the, uh, the tactics of the race to the game uh, really makes it very exciting and, and more, you know, mentally challenging, not just from a how to manage your energy standpoint, but you have to be kind of engaged to the race, uh, not only in the preparation and the lead up, but throughout the course. So hmm. I, I, you know, this was kind of amounted to be a lot more fun than the, the previous two uh, trips to the village. And the course is obviously unique to each race. And you said you had, you know, five years to sort of think about that course. You, you didn't actually do the World Cup test event, did you, back in 2019? I but it is uh, is a pool a pool and you know does that or actually w was your sort of london 2012 pool and rio 2016 pool very different by virtue of you know the sounds and the echoes and the things like that or and if a pool is a pool then 
does that make each new course that much more intimidating and or, or you know essential to get your head around and to, to picture in your head what what it's going to be you know and as far in advance of that race as possible and to know as much about it as possible in advance yeah I, another great question and i think it's certainly more the the latter than the former i i think a pool to some to to a, a large extent is a pool you know it's there's a really narrow temperature range from like you know 78.0 to 78.5 degrees fahrenheit that a competition pool is supposed to be held at that's not a i, I don't know if that's exactly it but it's a very narrow range mm. it's 50 meters wide the length the, the width of the lane is pretty much always the same the kind of lane lines and nice pools are kind of always the same that said i mean there was some level of difference in the energy of london versus the energy of rio one not bigger or smaller than the other just different in some ways hard to describe and that made the experience unique, uh, both from a, from a preparation and then a celebratory standpoint. But really, the competition, the once the the buzzer goes off and you're in the water, the difference between London, Glasgow, Singapore, Japan is negligible. Um, but every triathlon course is just completely different. Every and, and even you mentioned the test event you know, the, the race that occurred on the day of the test event and the race that occurred at the Tokyo Paralympics were fundamentally different. You know, sure. just the day, you know, the course, the day, the weather, the water conditions, everything is so variable in triathlon. And it, it's, it's not inconsequential. Like things like the water temp can really play in. And uh, one thing I was really excited about Tokyo was as a swimmer by background, um, the wetsuit, wearing a wetsuit's not it's not an advantage for me. Not wearing a wetsuit is a huge advantage. So I was excited about taking the variable of a wetsuit out of play. Um, something like short transition areas really played to our advantage and things like that. So we, you know, we were really excited about that Tokyo course. But more to your question, I really think that's one of the things I love about triathlon is that, you know, this this season we raced three times, Leeds, LA, and no, excuse me, four times, Leeds, LA, Wisconsin, and Tokyo. And every race was completely different. Um, and it's, I love that. I love that the challenge is to, for every athlete to do as much preparation as physically possible, both from a fitness standpoint, but from a tactics standpoint and techniques. But then to our, to our previous conversation, like you have to be flexible on game day. Things are going to be weird. The water chop's going to be higher or lower. The water might be warmer. The, the turn buoy might be off the, the, a big variable in Tokyo we were all worried about was the ramps coming out of the water. Apparently that those ramps change quite a bit with the tides. So you might have like going up a mountain ramp or you might have a, a flat ramp. You just don't really know exactly until game day. And we got kind of lucky in that regard. But again, it's just an example of all the things that can change from moment to moment. Yeah. And I love that about triathlon. I absolutely love that about triathlon. And was that half the thing after Rio then like was that part of that right it's a new challenge and it's you know it's it's more than just switching to a new sport it's everything that comes with the triathlon yeah, it, yeah go back to the the gift that keeps on giving I I think I looking back on when I was getting into triathlon in 2017 I really didn't fully grasp or understand the level of complexity involved I kind of came in thinking Oh, you know, I, you know, I'm a really good Paralympic swimmer. I've got that on the lock. Now I just need to figure out how to bike and run and I'm all good. Um, but camp number one, like day one, the coaches were setting up a transition practice, like a full hour and a half dedicated to transitions. And I looked at the schedule and thought, boy, what a waste of time. Like, let's just, let's just get, get to biking, get to running. 
And uh, the, I was really quick, quickly astounded at the level of complexity that can emerge just in getting out of the water and onto a bike. Like it, it's, mm. it's complicated, especially when you add a tandem bike in there and you've got clipped in shoes and helmets and glasses and all that stuff. It seems relatively obvious, but when you try to do it at full speed, a lot of things can come undone. And so I've loved all of that nuance. And it's been a long journey over five years. It's taken me until really like the last two months for some of those things to fall into place. Um, and uh, that's kind of what made me want to keep, keep racing. I kind of had in my mind prior to this season that Tokyo might be the last go of trying to be a Paralympian, but really kind of after seeing everything fall into place over the last two months, from a technique standpoint, I thought, well, I really got to keep, keep at this because there's still a lot of time to save on that course. There's a lot of skills to do better um, whether it's at the mount line or the dismount line, or just with overall fitness, there's still a lot of things to do better. And, and that's, what's been so gratifying about triathlon, no matter how well you do, there's always a, a way to do something better, which is awesome. And of the people on that, uh, of the men sharing that start line with you, you almost had less, uh, actual kind of rate international race experience than many. I mean, you know, just looking back through your results, the first one was 2018 and you did, um, was it Florida and then Yokohama pretty quickly, quickly after. So was, and then obviously the, the pandemic hit and so on. So like you said, so 2017, you took it, was they, was that part of a process where it was like, right, we're going to do some camps and we're going to see how this transition as in from sport to sport goes um and and that was almost like you know nailing those things like transition and seeing how the the bike and the run were going to go and working with a guide and all of that and um and then as far as the pandemic went and not being able to race there was you know there's a lot of athletes that have seen that as a good, good time to focus on various parts of uh, you know things that they necessarily like felt that they perhaps didn't have time in the course of a normal season but you hadn't been doing the sport for all that long so <laughs> what, what were you you know did that throw you off more than help you like it had some people or there's a lot of questions there sorry yeah it's an interesting question you're 100 right i was uh pretty let you know it was a difficult set of emotions in march of 20 right all of us all of us had big plans for the year and all that got derailed. And that was amidst a situation where we were all very afraid. Uh, I remember being a very afraid for my mom uh, and very afraid for our local community, for my, for my extended family, for my wife's extended family, for our community in general. So it felt on one hand, you were, I was really frustrated with my own athletic career and my, my goals and ambitions. But then also on the other hand, I felt really sort of like guilty and mad at myself for feeling frustrated about my career when you know our global community was facing this kind of really lethal threat that none of us had really known or understand it for so long and man, it was just a weird a really weird time uh, to try to wrap our head around but what my dialing in on my frustration is like 2020 was really kind of supposed to be a breakout season for me you you pointed out like I started in 18 17 was definitely just like a, Hey, let me get a, let me get a bike and let me meet a guide and let me figure out how the, this works logistically getting from one place to another. And let me just know and understand how to even do, do the swimming tether thing. And I, I didn't, I didn't have a wetsuit at the time, like just kind of put all that together. Then like actually start racing in 2018, 2019 start like ideally racing, not terribly 
by 2020, I felt like, all right, this season, I'm actually going to go out. We're going to race. Well, we're going to, we're going to threaten for some podiums. We're going to get some points and we're really going to set up making the team and, and hopefully making a podium push for Tokyo. But then that uh, we didn't get the race at all. So it's like, not only do we not get the race experience, but I'd worked for an entire off season to sort of break out and, and really start racing well. And uh, that got, you know, that got taken away. And not only that, but I, uh, I had on the horizon that I wanted to start this uh, PhD program. For me, I know I can't be an athlete forever. So I've kind of had, had in the back of my mind, like, what, what do I want my vocation to be? What am I going to do when sports is over? And uh, I want to be a teacher. So I needed to start this program. I actually committed to starting the program in the fall of 20, kind of understanding that Tokyo would come and go and I'd be able to focus on school. And I, I originally told my wife, I can't, I don't think I can do Tokyo. I have to I have to back out now because I have to focus on school. And she's been a really incredible support mechanism for me. And she kind of talked me through that and said, no, we, we can and we will make, make it all work. So we built a gym in the garage and we've been training our butts off in my garage for the last year to kind of keep all these balls in the air. And uh, throughout that entire process was a lot of doubt, was a lot of doubt as to whether this was all going to work out. And um so I, I, I know that there were athletes who were able to say, like, flip the perspective and say, let's use this as a time period to like work on a, on a, a week area. For us, it was really kind of like, can I just, can I stick with this? Can I make this work? And it was really hard, especially fall of 2020, trying to do school and training at the same time. It was really, really, really difficult. Um, but again, I, I give my, my wife all the credit in the world for just kind of like really sticking in it. And really being a support ne mechanism that I needed throughout that that off season, and it ended up being a, a major uh, advantage. Um, just kind of successively training for that long without really racing, I I hit the I hit the race circuit this year, and understood a fitness that I had I had never really been able to test on the race course. And then, um, lastly, partnering with Greg. Uh, in the last couple months, he's helped me kind of make a few small tweaks that were able to kind of unlock some wattage on the bike that I had there, but wasn't really tapping into and, uh, and really dialing on some techniques that helped us uh, on the, the course in Tokyo. So it was kind of cool how it all came together right there at the very end. Yeah, I wanted to ask how, how long you had been working with Greg, obviously. Um, you presumably don't get to entry level into the world of ptvi racing you don't get to have a, an olympian as a guide <laughs> so you have to earn a greg billington over some time yeah, so right. how does that um how did that come about and and who had you worked with previously and you know just just how that that relationship evolves i guess yeah so i owe a lot of credit to my first guide colin riley who really helped he was at that first camp with me in 2017 um he had worked with uh you know the the Aaron Scheides is the best uh, VI triathlete in America for, and was that for quite some long, quite a long time. And, and I'm sure Aaron's going to be back here before too long, but um, Aaron had kind of taught Colin how to guide. Colin then taught me how to be a, a VI athlete in triathlon. And we raced together for a number of years. Uh, but you know, the, the caliber of guide is coming up and up and up. And uh, if from, from the UK, you guys have watched Dave Ellis kind of grow into that and he, him working with Tim Don and some others is really kind of, made all of us else kind of all the rest of the athletes in the VI category look at, you know, where, where are their advantages to be gained and, and how can we keep raising the caliber of our guides? Um, and so I started uh, talking with Greg at the beginning of this season, who also 
guided Aaron in a handful of races at the beginning of the season. And um, Aaron was going to go back with his guide, Ben, and, and Greg kind of wanted to stick in with it. And uh, I, I, we decided to give it a go in Leeds. And the Leeds race was a nice, it was an interesting mix of things for us. It was a, it was a challenge getting a working bike to that race, which is a whole other story. But uh, Greg and I raced really well, but made a few mistakes that pushed us down into sixth and seventh. But what we were really excited about is some things went really well. We were really smooth in the water. We actually biked really well. We just did the wrong course and ended up adding a little bit of 90 seconds or so of extra biking that not everyone else had to do, which was fine. But um, we left the leads race thinking we have a lot of potential. And so we spent in between leads in, uh, I think, Wisconsin, really dialing in on uh, how to maximize our advantage as a, as a team. And that came to fruition big time in Wisconsin. That was the first, it was the first triathlon I won I, I, out, of, out of all these seasons, the first win I had. And hmm. I remember Greg kind of saying like, you know, we leading into the finish line he was like enjoy this celebrate and I was like I don't know how to celebrate I've not won a race before <laughs> so I don't know what to do um so in any case I, I say all that to say uh we Greg and I kind of matured as a team throughout this season you know tweak by tweak um but I think we found that there was a lot of natural chemistry between the two of us we get along really well we race really well together we're the same size which is really helpful in some ways uh both with kind of like stroke cadence and sitting onto the bike and all that and um, I, uh, it's been really gratifying to sort of see that team sort of evolve from the leads race through the season into a, a world championship. Olympic championship. Yeah. I mean, it, he must've been very grateful to your, for your wife's persuasive powers as well, then for getting you, <laughs> convincing yeah. you that Tokyo was the place to go. What, what sort of, what, at what point did that go from being a doubt to, to being all in? Well, I mean, from a training perspective, I've always sort of, I train all in, uh, but I think it just, I just started to, I, I, you know, over the last year, I've been wrestling with those doubts as to whether I'd even make the team. And, and that persisted all the way through it, really the Wisconsin starting line. I, you know, Kyle Kuhn, my teammate had an incredible race in Yokohama winning the race in Yokohama. And then obviously we have a giant in our sport, Aaron Scheides, and we only have two spots. And so I was doing the mental math on that and thought, you know, Kyle's on a tear and Aaron's a legend. I don't have, there's not a space for me here. Really, it came down to, unless I don't, unless I win the Wisconsin race, I'm not going to make the team. And I had never won a race before. So I had no reason to believe that that was even really possible. But, you know, you said, like you said, I, I mean, I train all in, I race all in. So we were going to give it the best go we had. And, uh, you know, we executed on race day in Wisconsin and that gave me a, that lit a fire that, uh, that I, I, that I didn't know was there necessarily. And, uh, it really kind of started, started there and, and grew from there. And I thought not, I was really just going to be happy to make it to the Tokyo games period. I think winning Wisconsin and coming across the line with Greg, I think we looked at each other and I think we looked at the splits and we said, we have a chance of we have a chance of meddling. And then as we started doing the preparation in, in Hawaii, I think we really started to believe like we have a chance of winning. We, we knew it was going to be, you know, a lot of things have to go right for us to be in that spot. But we thought, why not, why not race with that in mind? Why not race and think that we can beat Dave and why not race and think that we can beat Hector uh, from Spain. And, um, and that's how we did. And, and I, I feel, you know, begs acknowledgement that Dave had a, uh, you know, broke his chain and that really kind of sucks 
for everyone. I think, you know, it's nobody wants that and everyone wants the, the right race. Um, but I like to think that Dave would have been mowing us down on that run course and we would have really had a, a great battle there at the end. So we'll have to wait for that. Now we'll have to wait for, you know, either a, a, another race down the line or maybe the Paris games to see, you know, how that unfolds in a different course. Quite well. And, you know, you still had a great champion in Hector and, and obviously Kyle and, and, you know, plenty of others kind of chasing you down as well. So it's no, uh, that's right. Yeah. There's no taking away from any of that. Yeah. And, and to have all those elements that you've talked about kind of come together, you know, for anyone to ever win a triathlon, so many elements have to come together. And for the, for the VI athletes, it's like, it's augmented up another, another notch, isn't it? So like that, that coming together of the two of you at, at that finish line and, and knowing that it has all happened in, with the gold is uh, yeah. I can only imagine like for, for how that is for, for personal joy but also from from between the two of you yeah i there's a lot there's a couple layers there you know one especially after all the doubt of you know not even thinking we'd make the team to then kind of being coming down the finishing shoot with a, a minute gap that's 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 incredible i to going back to what you said at the beginning like i don't think that i i've still figured all of that out or i've, I've not really fully like absorbed it all and I, every time i kind of tell the story i, I re reimagine it and it gets smiley like all over again um but a, a fun part of it too was doing it all with greg i think you know greg retired and left the sport behind after 2016 and he's been doing obviously he's in incredible shape he's been doing marathons he's been winning marathons and all that sort of stuff um, but i think he came back into the sport uh, hesitant is not the right word, but he came into the sport sort of maybe with some armor up or something. And then from race to race, it became more fun. I think he like opened back up into his old self and really got intense about it and opened up to the possibility of taking some risks and really wanting to do well and succeed and get excited and dream and all that sort of stuff. And it, it built like it built race to race. Leeds was like, it was fun, but we can do better. And then Wisconsin was like, holy cow, we won. Like, what else can we do? And then, uh, you know, kind of working that through, you know, race to race, workout to workout, and then kind of like having that all come to fruition. It was just really incredible. And, uh, and like being, being a part of a tandem, a pair, as opposed to an individual is like that energy gets, you know, bounced back and forth between us at the finish line. Like, holy cow, we did it. Like, yeah, man, we did it. Holy cow, can you believe that? No, I can't. That's incredible. Like, that's not something you do in swimming. Like in swimming, it's like you come across the finish line. It's like, cool. It's sort of your thing. And you know, I high five my coach and all that, but it's a little bit different being able to sort of just kind of enjoy that moment with Greg makes it just far more sweeter. I think. Yeah. And for him coming back to the sport that he obviously spent so much time in and, and for you moving from one sport to the next, I mean, you know, did you find it a, a very welcoming sort of atmosphere, whether it was kind of out on the course or, or whatever, you know, did, was it, did it feel kind of pretty natural pretty quickly for you to, to become a triathlete? Well, in some senses, yes. The community, triathlon community is amazing. And from day one, camp one, uh, our team really embraced me as one of theirs. And uh, I've never, I've said this a bunch of times, I've been on a lot of teams over the years going back to my age group swimming days through collegiate, uh, collegiate swimming and 
being on military teams and stuff. This the Team USA paratriathlon team in Tokyo stands out. It's one of the best teams I've ever been a part of. It's just a remarkable group of individuals who are all very dedicated to their craft, but very warm and embracing of each other and supportive of each other. Uh, it was really an incredible experience. So yeah, the and then the, not just the Tokyo team, but triathlon in general. I, you know, one of our preparation races was the LA, uh, our national championships out in uh, Long Beach. And that's a really cool race because you get a lot of elite triathletes, a lot of elite pro triathletes. And then, um, uh, then like, it's also a development race to some extent where we get a lot of like newcomers in, in that race. And we're all racing together. There's the feeling of community is, is really high at that race. And it, you do feel like not only a part of an elite team, but a part of a broad community that spans across our entire nation and across the entire world of people who are, you know, more inclined to wake up early on Saturday morning and go do an hour, two hour, four hour long race or workout than anything else. And that's just a, it's a really cool group of people and they're all very supportive of each other. I, I love being a part of the triathlon community. That said, it's taken me a long time to feel like I'm a triathlete going back to 2017 and kind of thinking like, oh, you know, I just got to figure out how to bike and run and I've got this on lock, then being shocked about all of the different nuances and all the different techniques and all the different bike parts and ways to make your bike a little bit faster or a little bit different, or what's an arrow position and what's a disc wheel and what are disc brakes and all of this stuff that you have to learn along the way. It, it, I just felt race to race for a long time that I'm a newbie and I know nothing. And I couldn't really escape that because every race I would make some kind of bonehead mistake and feel like, man, I'm back to being a newbie again. Um, really only in the last two seasons or so have I started to feel like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a triathlete and I'm a big part of this. And I'm really excited to be a big part of this. And uh, that's been a cool transition for sure. And that's what gets people hooked on triathlon. I think, isn't it? Those little bits and those, uh, yeah, there's always just something else kind of crumbing out of the woodwork and like oh, okay that's yeah i need to get on yeah and, and people stick with it for decades because there's always something to tweak whether it's on your bike or your shoes or your tether or whatever else there's like something always to tweak or do a little bit differently or whatever i think that's cool and for you so your accident came in 2011 serving uh for the u.s military and you know you go to hospital you're you're lying in hospital like from that and literally a year later, you were on the Paralympic start line. That in itself is, is obviously, you know, it's an incredible journey and so on. But, but from like how quickly from lying in the hospital bed did, did sport become what you were going to focus on? Uh, you know, was there, because presumably the emotions are up and down and, you know, you, you could have gone on to become purely academic you know that's obviously one a huge part of your life as well or you know you totally reassess everything about your life I, I can only imagine in that situation so uh yeah the, the transition to becoming a sportsman and it's obviously a big part of the naval academy as well right you're a swimmer there so did did the pool just become even more your you know your kind of sanctuary for for the rehabilitation and, and something to just really sink your teeth into yeah, you're spot on. You ask really insightful questions. These are outstanding. I think, um, to your point, sports was a big part of my identity, not only just kind of growing up as an age group swimmer, but 
sports is a big part of both the Naval Academy and the military culture, sports and fitness really. And uh, as far as how quickly did sports become something to focus on? That's a harder question to answer. It became a part of my life really quickly. Um, really, what I remember about coming into uh, having an injury like mine, for me, my personal experience was that of, I'm very grateful to still be alive. For me, I got really close, you know, really within inches. If the blast had hit me a different way, if I had stepped on it a different way, or you know, if things hadn't gone the way that they had on the battlefield, I very likely could have lost my life or been way worse off. And uh, in fact, after the blast, I thought that I had died. I, I really, in my mind, I really was convinced that I had died. And, and I kind of accepted that in a way where I had reconciled my life and thought I did a good job and I'm proud of the life that I lived and I'm ready to pass on. Uh, but I didn't, I came back and I came back to a hospital and I came back without vision, but I didn't really recognize those facts quite as astutely as everybody else did, as quickly as they did. So I was coming from this place of, man, I can't believe I'm still alive. Isn't that great news? But everybody else around me was like, oh my God, I can't believe he's blind. And I don't know what that's gonna be like. And I'm afraid of that. And I'm worried about that. And I'm sorry, and I'm sad about blindness. And people keep hug they kept hugging me and crying and telling me how sad they were that I would be blind. And in my mind, I was like, that's such an odd, I'm not worried about that. I'm not afraid of that. Uh, I, and I don't want people to pity me. I don't want people to worry about me. I don't want people to think I'm incapable in any way, shape, or form. I need to start showing everybody that blindness isn't going to get me down. I'm going to be fine. Don't worry about me. I'm going to be fine. And I said that a bunch of times, and I felt like it kind of didn't really have as much of an impact. And so I was kind of on a mission to like get back to a high function as quickly as possible. But obviously, blindness poses some significant challenges. It's hard to find food on your Plate. It's hard to pick out your outfit in the morning. It's definitely hard to get from point A to point B if you can't see where you're going. So I needed something to show people that I was going to, you know, thrive in a sense. And sports was a way to do that. You know, with minor adaptations in the pool, I could start swimming and I could start swimming fast and I could start swimming well. And that was something I could use as a mechanism to show everyone, look, I'm fine. I'm still the same me that you know me. I'm still a swimmer. I'm still a good swimmer. I still enjoy swimming. And I'm now going to like use swimming as a platform to translate those lessons and that sort of feeling of, of uh, vitality into the other aspects of my life that I'm just now learning how to adapt. That kind of carried me through for a while. And that was what was more important to me than anything else. And then it kind of took on a life of its own. Well, someone said, well, you know, you, you went to swim practice. What about going to a meet? And, and oh, by the way, like, did you know that there's this Paralympic thing? There's blind athletes who compete in swimming. Oh, that's neat. Do you realize how lucky you are to be injured in a Paralympic year? Someone said, and I thought, <laughs> what, an, what an incredible perspective of somebody. No, I didn't realize how lucky I am. Let's give this a go. And then there was like, you know, sort of a sense of urgency. Like I needed to get into racing by February of 2012 to be eligible. And I, I actually hadn't left the hospital completely yet. So I was actually leaving the hospital to go train at the local YMCA uh, every day or every other day for lunch. And then I, I went to a meet and it kind of just like became this, like, if you need, if you want to do this thing, you have to go to this race. If you want to be on the national team, you have to get this cut. It sort of just one thing led to another thing led to another thing. And before I really realized it, I'm at the Paralympic trials and then I've earned a spot on the team. And I remember that that was kind of a moment where I was like, Holy cow, th this is cool. I got to, I remember this, they gave me a ball cap that said, uh, you know, uh, Team USA 
uh, London team or something like that. I'm holding this ball cap in my hand thinking, holy cow, like this is something I would have like I would have fallen over for when I was an able-bodied athlete growing up. Like I'll, I watched the Olympics every year and I would train with a guy who was trying to make the team. And I was all about, I had the little, the, the Olympic trial cut written in, in my ball cap when I was 11 years old, thinking one day I'd go to the Olympics. <laughs> I obviously didn't go to the Olympics, but to be holding that Team USA ball cap in my hand, you know, 20 years later was just really a surreal experience. So uh, I think, honestly, out of that whole loop, I was probably the last one to kind of get on board with this, like, Paralympics is the, the way for me and sports is a big part of my life. It was just kind of something that more or less happened. Um, and then only in London and then after London did I start to really understand that Paralympics was going to be a big core component of who I would be moving forward. And that obviously it's a natural response for people to want to hug you and be crying and say they're sorry about your blindness. The, the person that said, oh, you're actually very lucky because it's a Paralympic yes. year. Like that, is that person still in your life? Like that, that seems like the person that would stand out massively and perhaps. Uh... Yeah, that person's a really remarkable individual. His name's Rich Cardillo. He was a, a, a U.S. Army colonel. Uh, serving in a, in the war on terror in a number of ways. He got out of the military and he had a job at our uh, the U.S. Association for Blind Athletes. They're just a group that puts money and resources towards blind programs like goalball and gets tandem bikes in the hands of those who are visually impaired. And his job back then was kind of like that. He was called the military outreach coordinator. His job was to look, uh, look for military veterans uh, or injured vets who were a uh, either becoming blind or were blind as a result of war wounds or ailments or whatever else and try to get them involved in sports. And he called me a bunch of times and he was the one who said, yeah, I've got, I can fly you to this meet. And you, do you realize how lucky you are to be injured in a Paralympic year? This could happen. And uh, I think his enthusiasm was kind of put a seed in my head of like, how exciting could this be? And he texts me every so often. I actually owe him a phone call, but he's been a, obviously a big part of this crazy journey we're on. Yeah. There must be so many people who, served and had accidents you know 30 40 50 years ago that you know just something like this would have been so good for them and just didn't exist back then right yeah i think in various forms you know what's cool about the paralympics in general though is the paralympic history goes back to uh the uk the stoke mandeville games which was four wounded vets uh, after world war ii or i think during and then after world war ii so the the notion of a Paralympic competition being cathartic for the wounded vet is really core to the Paralympic movement, which I'm very proud of. Mm. Um, but you're right, there are a lot of military veterans all over in the UK, in Canada, here, Australia, folks who have served in Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, you know, in Africa, who have uh, encumbered significant wounds, either visible or invisible and uh, who have not been provided sports as an opportunity to sort of work through those things. And I, you know, there's a lot of us who have, me, Melissa Stockwell, Eric McElvaney, um, who have you know, really been able to turn that into something big. And, and that's awesome. And I think, I don't wanna speak for everyone in the wounded vet community, but you know, a big part of my motivation in doing this is to really kind of put that out there as an option, put this out there as something that it's really an important part of our society. It's really important part of the warrior's journey as well is, you know, this, this is a way to help you kind of work through all of that stuff, whether it's PTS or a physical ailment. Sports is really powerful uh, as a way of, uh, of catharsis. And uh, that's something that I 
not everyone needs to go to the Paralympics and win gold medals because then, you know, I would be out of a job. But, you know, if, if, if sport at any level uh, is, is really cathartic in that way. Hmm. And just for, you know, anyone listening who didn't, doesn't know, your, your role in the military was, was very specialist. It was render safe, unexploded devices. Um, yep. A very specialist area, right? I mean, would, would there be kind of one of you per platoon or, or company and you would kind of when they go out on on exercise and you'd be out there so presumably the majority of your military career you were kind of clenched and and tense about something like that happening were you absolutely yeah you're right there were there were two of us with every assault platoon uh whose job was to be kind of on standby in the case that anybody really encountered an explosive hazard, whether that was an, a, an unexploded bomb, something that's, you know, a, either a US or other aircraft had dropped that didn't detonate, or an insurgent device that was either implanted or uh, about to be implanted, or a weapons cache or something along those lines. Um, we're on standby for that sort of thing. And um, you're 100% right. You know, we did a mission every other three days or so, you know, every three days. And every time you step off of the helicopter, you kind of think, you know, this today could be my day. And at the time I was there in 2011, uh, IEDs were a really cheap and effective way for the Taliban, who was very outnumbered and outmatched by ISAF, International Security Afghanistan Forces, or whatever that acronym stands for. Um, They were very outmatched, so they could kind of, you know, level the playing field by planting these bombs all over the place, which made it very difficult for anybody to do anything. And the really frustrating thing about that way of warfare to me is that it affects everybody. It affects the civilian populace. It affects uh, whether you think whoever, however you determine good guys or bad guys, it affects all the guys on the battlefield. And it's really, it's an ugly way of going. Like I wasn't the first guy I saw get blown up and it's not a pleasant thing for anybody. And um, you know, kind of a frustrating experience, but you're right. Like every time you step off the helicopter, you think today might be my day. And then you kind of get used to doing that mission every so often. And then every time you, I remember every time I got on the helicopter going home was like this immense feeling of relief. Like I made it through, I made it another day and I'm going to go home and, you know, call my family and enjoy life as much as possible. Cause who knows what'll happen on the next mission. Hence you felt relief and blessed that you didn't lose your life just your vision if you're if one of those goes off underneath you obviously but exactly. <laughs> did and did the the military door kind of close for you straight away then were there still other avenues that you could have presumably like stayed in the in the military but just felt that was probably not for you anymore or yeah um again great insightful question the um the military did not close the door on me. And in fact, the military was incredibly supportive, not only like day, day one, week one, month one, you know, supporting me and my family through a very difficult process of being in the hospital and in and out of surgery and all that. The military was incredibly supportive. Uh, and and in kind of the broader military community, in, especially in the US, we have a lot of uh, what we call VSOs, veteran support organizations that are civilian you know, nonprofit organizations that fundraise and put resources to veterans. So we had a lot of support, all kinds of things throughout that time period to make sure that not only the burden on me as a result of my injury, but the burden on my mom, my family was all alleviated as much as could be possible. 
Um, so we felt really supported there. And all along the way, my chain of command was very supportive of the idea, like, you don't have to leave the military. You can, we can find a job for you. Um, and I would continue to be a lieutenant and I would earn a paycheck and, you know, so on and so forth. And then even what was made clear to me is even after I, when I would leave the active duty force, I would uh, receive, you know, disability benefits for, for life, essentially. Like there was no real professional pressure on me to do anything other than what I wanted to do, what was going to be most fulfilling and satisfying for me personally. Right. Um, I elected to leave because I, you know, I spent my all of my growing up wanting to be a naval officer uh i spent all of my naval officership learning how to be an explosive ordnance disposal officer how to serve with special operations forces work with green berets work with seals work with marines on really intense missions in the war on terror or otherwise and nobody's going to let me do that job if i can't see i can't shoot i can't take bombs apart how terrifying is that the idea of a blind guy trying to figure out which wire to cut the red wire or the green wire right so not going to be able to do that job i wasn't interested and i knew there's some other way for me to like maximize my my capabilities and mitigate my disability um, the military is not that i will figure something out to your point I, I turned my attention i originally thought i wanted to go get an mba and find a corporate job uh, it took me a while to find academia as a much better uh, place for me to be where in academia, my blindness really doesn't factor in a whole lot. If I, so long as I can find the right resources, I can teach, I can write, I can read, no problem. It doesn't really play into my professional life all that much, which I'm very gratified about. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I left the military uh, on my own accord in 2013. Mm. And having had that as your profession, then what might to some be a pretty disconcerting thing of going down a pool for the first time and not being able to see where the end is or whether you're going left or right or whatever is is pretty small fry i would imagine is it <laughs> but still something yeah exactly. something pretty major yeah, to adapt yeah. to for a, what was already like a big part of your life and you know being in the pool was <laughs> people say, people would ask i thought this was really funny like the first time are, are you afraid like are you afraid of swimming i said no absolutely not and they said what about the start like i think people looked at i would get up on the block and i would jump into the pool and uh, they'd say, are you afraid to jump into the water? And I said, well, no, like what kind of messed up individual would say, take your mark and go into an empty pool? Like I have some faith in humanity, you know what I'm saying? Truth, yeah. But for someone who you know, had been through Naval Academy, been in the army and the, I guess one of the hardest, the, the biggest things to come to terms with must've been that the, like the pace of life that you were used to, right? Where everything is kind of, you know, life and death decisions made really quickly. And then suddenly everything you want, literally everything you want to do is somewhat dependent on someone else, or at least made that much harder that it's slowing you down, getting to where you want to be. Yeah, that's exactly right. I don't know that I would have understood it in those terms back then, but you're right. I think I, I looked at it, I think in terms of independence and autonomy, I used to be able to do so many things, so many things, jumping out of aircraft, scuba diving, shooting my weapon, blowing things up, preventing things from blowing up. And then very mundane, easy things became something I couldn't do. I couldn't order dog food off of Amazon. I couldn't wash the dishes without breaking a glass. I couldn't, uh, you know, sometimes I'd get lost in my own house, those sorts of things there was sort of this existential frustration with this shouldn't be difficult for me. And it is. And that makes me so mad or upset or dissatisfied or discontent or frustrated, whatever your word, 
Um, but you're 100% right. It was kind of like a pace of life thing. It was a capability thing. It was a, uh, you know, it's all, we, we talk a lot about identity these days. And it, really my identity, I, I was kind of in an identity vacuum after I left the service. I had spent so long kind of growing up with a certain vision of myself as this sort of naval officer, as a servant of my country, as a leader, all these things. And I, a lot of that got that kind of thrown into doubt really when I lost my vision. And I think that's really in essence, like the importance of sport. It allowed me, it gave me a platform or a mechanism or a means to start to kind of piece together that new identity. Um, and, and while sports is a huge part of who I am now, it's not the entire thing. So when I leave behind sports, I won't face the same challenge. I've been kind of doing the same thing on the side with academia. Like I'm not only am I a triathlete, but I'm also a professor. And so when I leave triathlete behind, I'll become a professor. And when I leave professor behind, I'll become, I'll be husband, I'll be dad, I'll be whatever else. So I, I think it's important to sort of nurture all these different aspects of our identity, but I certainly wasn't that mature or I didn't have all my ducks in a row back then. And, and there were some years, you know, 2013, 2014, where I really had to do a lot of um, what do they call it? Soul searching and things like that. And kind of putting those pieces in order. And now, so you were straight back to studying after Tokyo. What, what do you have left of that? And it sounded like perhaps a part of you thought maybe Tokyo would have been your last dance, but now you've also kind of thinking Paris 2024. So where does, where do do you sit now? And in terms of, yeah, you know, where the PhD leaves your sporting ambitions going forwards and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things I always was attracted to about academia is that there is flexibility and and there's space uh, within this sort of professional endeavor to be an athlete as well. I mean, we expect the same of our students. We have students who are rugby players and triathletes and uh, so on and so forth. So um, there's no, there's no reason that I can't do that and teach at the same time. Um, it is difficult while I'm doing my coursework as a grad student, uh, the amount of reading and courses and seminars that I have to do is pretty extensive right now, but I only have that for two more semesters. So I'm taking uh, four credits this semester and then another two next semester. And then I'm, I take examinations in the spring and then I'm essentially, uh, I have a, I'm kind of in this, uh, no man's land where I, I have three years to put together a dissertation. During that time frame, the expectation is that I'm doing research, that I'm writing, I'm doing some teaching, but the focus should be putting together this dissertation that I will uh, uh, inevitably defend here in Princeton at the four or five year mark, and then go to the job market and try to get a job as a professor somewhere. I'd love to get a job here or Annapolis or somewhere else. And uh, that's the professional kind of landscape. You're right, I, I did kind of have in my head that Tokyo might be the last games, but Greg and I had such a great time and we achieved so much in the last six weeks that we really kind of could, felt like we couldn't leave it there. Um, we really want it for, for just the sake of enjoying racing together. I, it's not really a quest for gold as it is just a desire to continue to compete. Uh, I feel like a couple of things. One, personally, I feel like there's a lot to be improved upon Greg and I have only been racing one season. We thought, man, if we were able to achieve that in one season, what could we do with a couple more? Mm. Two, I don't feel like we were racing on the right bike. And honestly, you know, Greg Greg and I are kind of on a mission to make tandem biking as cool as possible because there's really just not, especially relative to those who ride single bikes, there's not as many 
fast racing style tandems out there uh, in the market. There's not a lot of bike companies that are making them mm -hmm. specialized as big of a company as specializes doesn't even make a tandem. Neither does Cannondale, neither does Trek. And that's an that's crazy to me, like these giant bike companies, they don't even make a tandem bike. Mm -hmm. So we are uh, kind of on a mission to make tandeming as cool as possible. We're going to try to build a real fast bike for the two of us and then just take it race by race. I mean, we talked about it. Every race is different. Every race has uh, advantages or disadvantages or things that might pose, you know, go well for us, might be challenging for us. There's cobblestones, there's mountains, there's lakes, there's oceans, there's rivers, there's all kinds of fun stuff to go out, get out there and race on. And I think Greg and I are just really excited to take it as it comes. Uh, the idea of racing in Paris, I think excites both of us. Um, I, I've never, I've only been to France a handful of times, but I've watched the tour every year. The idea of maybe a, a triathlon down the Champs-Élysées sounds really cool to me. So let's see how that shapes out. And then uh, this is not me committing to anything, but there's this looming thing for us as Americans that it's out there a number of years away, but it's really hard to turn down this idea of maybe competing in a Paralympics on home soil. And I know that's something that just really gets at the heart of every athlete and it's a far way away, but maybe it's not that far. And maybe Greg and I could kind of hang up our hats or hang up our helmets in Paralympic competition on home soil. That would be super cool for the LA games. But like I said, I just want to take it one race at a time. Yeah. Yeah. What a way to go out that would be indeed. And I suppose to a, to an outsider, the, the you know, the, the idea of being able to train and, uh, and study or write your dissertation at the same time, it's, it feels like there could be a nice sweet spot there, right? You know, you're kind of working in the morning, go out, do some training, come back, clear head, back to the desk. It all sounds so easy. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, I mean, that's my fantasy. That's when I like sketch it out there, I'm like, how hard could it possibly be? <laughs> well, that fresh air, good for the brain. Exactly. Great. Well. Brad, it's been brilliant talking to you. Thanks very much for taking the time. And um, I know you got a lot on today as well. So uh, yeah, we should let you get to your to your Thursday. But it's been it's been fascinating. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, back to reading about ancient Greece for the and then the afternoon is sociology of organization. So a busy day for sure. Oh, what a coincidence. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Great. All right. Well, congratulations again on a on a brilliant Paralympics. And uh, yeah, look forward to the next stage. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun. I, I, just give me a ring anytime. I'd love to chat. Brilliant. Cheers.